1: In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 135 through 144.
0: Okay, now we come to the big one <laughs> Psalm 139. It's called by many the greatest and most notable and noble of all the Psalms. If you don't jot down any other, remember 139. 139. Because it's going to hit head on the attributes of God. And what are the attributes of God? Well, he's omniscient. What does that mean? Well, God is all-knowing. He knows everything. That's why he can't learn. It's one of the things he can't do. He can't learn, right? He's omnipresent. He's everywhere present he's everywhere he uh, Paul Davies a scientist said it's as if the whole universe is nothing more than the thought in the mind of God he's everywhere and he's omnipotent God is all powerful all powerful now what we think about God determines what we think about everything else when we think about everything else, derives from what we think about God. The others, other people, the universe, God's word, God's will, sin, faith, obedience, all these derive from our understanding of who God is. Wrong ideas about God will lead us down the wrong path. So this psalm is going to focus on these three primary attributes of God. Okay, it's to the chief musician the psalm of David, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar of off. Thou compassed my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. This speaks to the omniscience of God. He knows everything. He knows me. He is the ultimate psychologist. He knows my thoughts better than I do. And by the way, he's the only one that does. People always ask, there's a big this theological debate, you know, can Satan read our, know our thoughts? I don't think so. Except in the sense that a psychologist might. He might draw inferences by our behavior. But only God knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. I, think, I take great comfort in that. That's to, you, know, you, know why, you know why that's in the Bible? To keep the personnel departments out of the act. Right? Okay. There is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, for it is high; I cannot attain to it. And again, this is, gets at the whole idea that God can't learn; He knows everything about you, can't be surprised. And uh, now, how can God know all that? I don't know. The psalmist doesn't know either. I cannot attain to it. And so, uh, I won't even try. It's interesting to me to realize that all the, the, the frontier of every field of science is information theory. Physics, the, the, the whole field of particle physics has challenged the very meaning of what information is. The, bio, the microbiologists are discovering the primary threshold of understanding is the theory of information. I think that's fascinating for a lot of reasons. But anyway, the psalmist continues now about omnipresence. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, or hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. Well, they say you can run, but you can't hide. <laughs> No matter where you go, you cannot get away from God. And Jonah tried. It didn't work. Until God explained his assignment a little more clearly to him. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. Daniel Webster, American statement and... and, uh, Order, a student of Scripture, incidentally, made an impressive use by paraphrasing this for one of his uh, 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 cases. And it's become much quoted by. Uh, uh, You'll recognize that where he you can recognize in his articulation, he was a man of the cloth, he man of the word. He said, A sense of duty pursues us ever, it is omnipresent like the deity. If we take to ourselves the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, duty performed or duty violated is still with us for our happiness or our misery. If we say, Surely the darkness shall cover us in the darkness as the light of our obligations are yet with us, we cannot escape their power nor fly from their presence. Obviously an echo of Psalm, you know, 139. But uh, Daniel Webster, very articulate guy, but obviously drawing on his familiarity with the scriptures. Moving on, verse 13. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. This one gets deeper. I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. You know, it is absolutely astonishing to me the more I discover by reading or periodicals, whatever, about the human body or anything having to do with biology. It's astonishing to discover the complexity and the interdependence of all the parts. They're now discovering, just a recent article in Scientific American, that in the retina of the eye, there's... All kinds of visual processing that goes on in the retina, even before it gets sent on. And uh, they're just still being, they're beginning to get glimmers of the incredible complexity of design. What fascinates me, too, is that the opposite of design is randomness. Randomness is defined as the absence of any patterns. No periodicity, no periodicity, no, uh, uh, periodicity, no uh, symmet- symmetry, nothing like that. It's the ran- that's what randomness means. And it's very difficult to attain, by the way. It takes a lot of effort to get true, true randomness empty of any design. And yet, we live in a culture today that's decided that everything happened by randomness. That's disprovable. And yet, that's what we embrace. And that's what our kids are inculcated on in school. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works. And that, <clears throat> and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Whew! What's all that about? The phrase in the Hebrew, the lowest parts of the earth, is a rhetorical device to mean privately, out of sight. That may be all it means. On the other hand, see it may be a variant to the word secretly earlier um, in the preceding case. But it's also possible that this might be an illusion to some hyperdimensionality that's involved. I have long suspected, I don't have any knowledge here. I have long suspected that even the mind is probably a transfer function to another 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 environment altogether. And uh, the whole hyperspace issue may be hinted at here somewhat. But that's beyond the scope of this study. Let's go on. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. Now, the incomplete. In other words, I was in existence before I was conceived. Before I became substance, even a a, a fertilized zygote, whatever. That's physical. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. Unperfect, not being with uh, imperfections, but in sense, being incomplete. I hadn't been put together yet. You saw me. And in thy book all my members were written, which were in continuance, were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, I was designed. I was put in our vernacular. I was in the drawing boards before I was put into production. Uniquely, distinctly. Thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Well, this is all, you know, the, the other thing I was going to mention about the biology, uh, really, if you take, if you assume somehow, as if we think we understand, that the DNA has all the information to reproduce you. That's what the whole uh, plot line of Jurassic Park was all about. By getting the DNA out of the mosquito, presumably, you theoretically could create the whole dinosaur by, you know, by processing. Because we're made up of fungible atoms and molecules. The key is the, is the, is, the archety- is the coding to put it together. and that's what the DNA apparently has, except that leaves a problem. Because the DNA, when you have a first, the first cell, sperm, egg get together, fertilized zygote, it splits to two. Mitoses take place, it splits. Then the two become four, the four become eight. You know, you've all seen processes in films or in a microscope, whatever. Except something very strange happens. They're identical splits. But then pretty soon, they start specializing. A little dark line, that that turns out later to be a backbone. They start specializing to certain kinds of tissues. Those tissues become certain kinds of organs. Now the problem is, when they first split, the first split that takes place, they're identical splits, Right? Let's assume you have the complete blueprint in each library, in each cell. No problem so far. Then they split it again. They're identical, right? And they each have the full copy. DNA continues. If the DNA continues, let me give you the analogy. Let's assume every one of you in this room had the skill to play any musical instrument. You could play many of them, and there's plenty of them around. And let's assume I gave each one of you a complete copy of the symphony. Would we have a symphony? No, because there's an issue in computer design called conflict resolution logic. Somewhere, somebody has to decide you're going to be first violin, you're going to be percussion, you're going to be string, you know, whatever. Not only to make the assignments and allow you to specialize, but also to bring it together into a harmonious whole. That requires... External information. Just giving a complete description of the symphony to each cell doesn't give you a symphony. From an information science point of view, it requires external input to make it happen. Follow me? That implies that God is involved in some way in every cell division. Staggering. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being imperfect, that in thy book all my members were written, which were in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, there are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Two key facts. God loves us, and he's all-powerful. What a combination of thoughts. that God is all powerful. There's nothing he can't do. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. God loves us. And the God who loves us is all powerful. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. He's talking to God. They speak against thee, God, wickedly. And thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? Am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. The word perfect there is also complete. Not perfect because it's not... Free of imperfections, it's, we use the term perfect a little differently. Here it just means complete, complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. See, both the wicked and the godly are mentioned in the psalms. And these few verses are why this psalm happens to be categorized as an imprecatory psalm. It's a strange label for a psalm that really is aimed so highly. The Pregatory psalms, remember they were enemies, the enemies is talking about were rebels against God, not just against David personally or something. And the precatory psalms are, uh, the, the covenant people were protected under conditions of obedience. If they were obedient, they were protected by God and they were entitled to the precatory psalms. And that's listed in a number of places. And the battle of good and evil has been going on since Genesis 3. There's nothing new here. And that's part of what this is all about. Satan is not through. And we can't remain neutral in this battle. And Psalm 139, 140 are imprecatory psalms that are on the table in front of us. This one and the one following. Psalm 139 continues. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. That should be our prayer. It takes confidence to pray that prayer. You need to know God loves you in order to pray that prayer. Okay, God, search me. You will judge the wicked and pray, pray that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and he's everywhere. Okay, Psalm 140 is going to focus, going to pick up this theme and focus specifically on evil leadership. And uh, David, it would seem in writing this, was surrounded by evil men, people that were slandering him. King Saul had ordered his officers to, get, to kill David. He is a fugitive. And uh, evil men were plotting against him continually. This psalm also, though, is a prophecy of the last days, when a godly remnant of Israel will face the Antichrist, the false Messiah, that man of sin. And the psalm also has an application. There's sort of three levels here. David's historical one. A eschatological or prophetic one, and then an application for you and I. Each one of us can pray this prayer as we go through, look through Psalm 140, to the chief musician of Psalm of David. Deliver me, O Lord, from the evil man; preserve me from the violent man, which imagine mischiefs in their heart continually. Are they gathered together for war? These are uh, John and his uh, the Apostle John in his first in his first epistle points out that there are now many antichrists. As you heard, antichrist will come. There are many antichrists. Remember that in in, in the second chapter of of 1 John. Gather together for war. They have sharpened their tongues like a serpent. Adder's poison is under their lips. And then we have selah, that word that says, think about that. Stop a, a thought connector. Romans, Paul in Romans picks up that term, in Romans chapter 3, as it's written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Just a quote from that psalm. Same flavor, same, same issue. The danger of wicked leadership whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Boy, does that characterize our culture today. There are more murders in Washington for political reasons than we dare list over the last decade or so, over a hundred. Swift to shed blood. There's no fear of God before their eyes. There have been people misinformed. There have been people who slipped here and there, but intended well. No, this is not that anymore. There is no fear of God at all here. Moving on to Psalm 140, verse 4. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from the violent man who have purposed to overthrow my goings. The proud have hit a snare for me. The cords, they have spread a net by the wayside. They have set gins for me. Selah again, and uh, David's prayer. It's it pretty vis- easy to visualize David in this situation because he was a fugitive for probably a decade from Psalm uh, from uh, uh, Saul, and uh, wrote many psalms that echo that, of course. And they spread a net. The word "gins" is really a a uh, um, a, a senior moment a uh, hoop, a hoop for capturing a small animal. And thus it becomes a trap or a snare. And uh, But, uh, uh, Dear beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord, Is again out of Romans. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him, if he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So we've got Four lessons here in this psalm. The first five verses that we've gone through, what sinners do to God's people. The next one is what God's people should do to sinners. and We've got a taste of that here in verses 6 through 8. And uh, I said unto the Lord, Thou art my God. Hear the voice of my supplications, O Lord. O God the Lord, the strength of my salvation. Thou hast covered my head in the day of battle Grant not, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Further not his wicked device, lest they exalt themselves. Again, Selah. Uh, uh, That pause. Boy, think of that. The third lesson is what does sin do to sinners? We've seen what sinners do to God's people, what God's people should do to sinners. Now what does sin do to sinners? That's the next couple of verses here. As for the head of those that compass me about, let the mischief of their own lips cover them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire into deep pits that they rise up not again. Let not an evil speaker be established in the earth. Evil shall hunt the violent man to overthrow him. And then the final thing is, okay, what does God do for his people? I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and the right of the poor. Surely the righteous shall give thanks unto thy name. The upright shall dwell in thy presence. Okay, a couple more and we'll wrap it up here. Psalm 141. This is again a, a close cousin. This is deliverance from evil. Again from David. Lord, I cry unto thee, make haste unto me, give ear unto my voice when I cry unto thee. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as an incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Interesting way of putting it. He's saying, don't let my lips and my life contradict each other. That's basically what he's saying. Incline not my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men that work iniquity. And let me not eat of their dainties. Let the righteous smite me. It shall be a kindness. Let him reprove me. It shall be an excellent oil, which shall not break my head for yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. What he's really saying here is avoid compromise. We be working in the world, but we should not be of the world. Or as one writer put it, the boat should be in the ocean, but it's tragic when the ocean gets in the boat. Okay, it's <laughs> so the same idea. And, and as far as uh, this issue is concerned, it's not how do we get out of this, but rather how do, what do we get out of this? When we're in trouble, it's not the question of just getting out of the trouble. The other thing is, what do we get out of the trouble? Why, what, why did God bring that? What are the lessons? Our prayer should be, let the lessons not be wasted. When their judges are overthrown in stony places, they shall hear my words, for they are sweet. My, our bones are scattered at the grave's mouth, and one cutteth and cleaveth wood upon the earth. But mine eyes are unto thee, O God the Lord. In thee is my trust, leave not my soul destitute. And don't take, off, don't take your eyes off the Lord. Remember Peter when he's walking on water there in uh, uh, Matthew 14? He was doing fine until he took his eyes off the Lord. And he started to sink. And that, that little object lesson I think is true of our lives as we face uh, crises of different kinds, whether it's people plotting against us or whether it's just some form of impatience. Let's not take our eyes off the Lord. Don't compromise. Keep me from the snares which they have laid for me for the gins of the workers of make naked. Gins, again, is a, a, a mokesh. It's a term meaning a, like a noose for catching small animals or a hook for the nose. It means to be ensnared, the way it's being used here. Let the wicked fall into their own nets whilst that I withal escape. Oh, here we go. I thought I, knew, I, thought I had a footnote here. Good. Yeah, there's mokesh. Um, a noose for catching animals, a hook, and so forth. Okay. Okay, the cave song. This is one written in the cave. In fact, it says so. That's Moshel, which means it's an instructionary thing. In fact, it's a model prayer. The, the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. Well, this is an equivalent kind of response where David's teaching us to pray, in effect. A prayer where he was in a cave, but it's really an instructionary song. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, with my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed him before uh, him, my trouble. There's a piece that was written in the 17th century I had to throw in here about telling God. I thought that since we're talking about prayer here, focusing on prayer, this is, I think, useful. Tell God all that is in your heart as one unloads one's hearts, its pleasures, and its pains as if to a dear friend. Tell him your troubles that he may comfort you. Tell him your joys that he may may, uh, sober them. Tell him your longings that he may purify them. Tell him your dislikes that he may help you to conquer them. Talk to him of your temptations that he may shield you from them. Show him the wounds of your heart that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifference to, to good, your depraved tastes for evil, your instability." Tell them how self love makes you unjust to others, how vanity tempts you to be insincere, how pride disguises you to yourself as to others. If you thus pour out all your weaknesses, needs, and troubles, there will be no lack of what to say. <laughs> you will never exhaust the subject, it is continually being renewed. <laughs> People who have no secrets from each other never want subjects of conversation. They do not weigh their words for there is nothing to be held back. Neither do they seek for something to say. They talk out of the abundance of the heart without consideration just what they think. What great advice. We tend to be so formal with prayer, so guarded. How silly. God knows it all. What joy there is is being open and candid with him. Tell them what you really think.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org.